The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we give you thanks for your word which lifts up in front of us from passage to passage, from psalm to psalm, it lifts up in front of us who you are, celebrates your beauty, calls us to, to thoughtful embracing, maybe repenting, and so often as we've seen, to rejoicing. Thank you for that. And Lord, then we ask you today, will you grow in us gladness in heart because of who you are, the reigning king, and because of what you are, righteous and just? Or will you grow in us a sweet appreciation of and a sweet following after you in these traits? We build a church that's like this, and all, Lord, but so often the, the refrain of these psalms is joy. All of that, Lord, for our joy. So I ask you, Father, would you commission your spirit now to have free reign in this room and in our hearts to lift up before us what you mean for us to see, you yourself, and to accomplish in us what you mean to have accomplished our growth into Christ-likeness, and our gladness. Make that happen, please. If there's something in the way, Lord, if there's some physical barrier, some, some ability to concentrate and focus, some spiritual barrier, some, some sin that we're holding on to, or some spirit that is distracting, would you clear those barriers, clear them from our our, our sight from our hearts and speak. Grow us and change us. Thank you for your commitment to do that. Now do it, please, in power for your glory and for our good. Amen. It is easy to appreciate mercy. It's easy to notice our own need for it whenever we realize we've messed up and we're responsible for that. We, we see that and we're grieved by it, and right away, mercy from the one we've let down, or particularly from God, seems very sweet, and when we receive it, it is a relief, it is heartwarming, it's good, easy to appreciate it. Likewise, grace is easy to appreciate. We see our own shortage or our own ability, our weakness, our frailty, and the giving to us of what we need in, in the midst of that frailty, that, that weakness, that vulnerability, even though we have no ground to stand on which says, I should get this, I, I'm, I'm deserving of this, we have no right, but when we receive what we need, grace, it is so very helpful and we rejoice in it. Kindnesses like these. Receive love. Mercy, grace, those things are easy to appreciate. They're very desirable. They meet us in our need, and right off they appear to us as pretty clearly blessings. Righteousness, however, sometimes doesn't quite strike us in the same way, at least right off. The concept even the word sometimes sounds a bit rigid rather than soft and sweet and kind. Righteousness. Sometimes, it, in fact, it seems like it's on the opposite side of the equation from mercy and grace and love and kindness and tenderness. In fact, it seems like it's the thing that mercy and grace rescues us from. Righteousness and our failure at righteousness, our unrighteousness. We, we see this is sometimes what is so sweet about mercy and grace. 
A God of mercy and grace, absolutely very attractive to us, but a God of righteousness and justice? A God who is holy and pure and rules for holiness and purity? That's not immediately, obviously, blessing and sweet to us. And really, even the tone, you can't even use the same. Righteousness and justice, you can't say grace and mercy. The tone doesn't even fit. These, these things seem different. Righteousness strikes us as maybe a bit frightening and a bit off-putting and a bit hard. But our psalm for today would invite us to see that differently. Not to downplay mercy, not to downplay grace, by no means. But to grow in us an appreciation of and to grow in us delighting in and even embracing of God in his glorious, righteous justice. to see that and to, and to be warm with that and even delighted in that, to see that as clear blessing. That's the kind of growth that Psalm 97 would, as we pray it and learn to pray it and learn to meditate on it and learn to sing it, that's, that's the growth that may happen in us as we become tight with Psalm 97. So towards that end, towards the growth in us of it, the appreciation of it, and the welcoming of this God of righteousness and growth in righteousness ourselves. Towards that end, I'm going to make three observations from the psalm you just heard read. So here's the first. It's about God. The Lord reigns in majestic Righteousness. The Lord reigns in majestic righteousness. Our psalm continues a theme raised in the previous one, Psalm 96, verse, verse 10 says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And then the last verse of that psalm, He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. So you've got God's reign and God's righteousness, and to a lesser extent, the peoples. Remember, we talked about last week, those who are far off, talking about the Gentiles, the nations of the earth, those out there. Those themes, God's reign, God's righteousness, and to an extent, the peoples, comes into and is continued in our passage here. We're seeing here in his first observation that this God reigns, the Lord, and then that this God reigns in a particular fashion, he reigns like this, in majestic righteousness. First, who reigns? First one, it's the Lord. And as we've considered before, we need to hear that statement in a context. It's these psalms, they, the people then, they existed in a, a context where you would hear the Lord and you'd think of not every other God, not all of the multiple gods of all the peoples, every people, and sometimes even little locales, geographic areas, there were gods everywhere. Everybody had one, every place had one. We mentioned that before. It comes up here again in verses 7 and 9. There are gods everywhere, represented often by, by actual physical idols in shrines or temples where people would go and bow down to them and worship and offer sacrifice to them. Very common back then. Still done today. Parts of the world or parts of America that have peoples from the world, that's still done today. But even amongst people who don't think of themselves as very religious, this is still done today. Maybe not with a physical idol and a physical shrine somewhere, but everything that we, that we consider as vital, everything that we live oriented around, live circling, live to sacrifice for, live to, to attain so as to, so we think, receive life from, functionally that's our God. We are human beings, we are, we are worshipers at our core. Sometimes physical idols in a physical shrine, but, but everywhere. Sometimes intangible things that, that we wouldn't identify as, as a god. Is, is reputation a god? Is pleasure a god? 
Well, if you're living for it, and if it's, if it's what you sacrifice for, and it's from which you think you receive life, then yes. Intangible things like jobs and money and, and relationships. And maybe an actual religious deity. Whatever it is, it's everywhere on the earth still today, and the point here is that only one of those worshipped things actually is God. The rest is just worthless idol. There's only one God everywhere, not just in one locale, over everyone, not just over one particular people. High over all of the earth, exalted over everything. Verse 9. Who is it? The Lord. The Lord is the one and only true Lord. Notice that at the end of verse 5, you see Lord in all capital letters and Lord in with some lowercase letters. First one is his name, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and the second one is the title Master, Ruler. This particular God is the Master and Ruler over everything, everywhere. Lord over all the earth. He alone reigns. He alone determines the course of the creation, its times and its seasons. He alone determines purpose. He alone gives meaning. He alone grants approval and passes judgment. Over everything everyone does, ever. He's the king. And he is awesome and majestic. He's awesome and majestic. Verses 2 to 5 build up an imagery, build up this imagery of, of a storm and fearful response. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Verse 3 rushing and spreading fire. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries. Verse 4, flashing lightning. And the people who see this Lord like this, how do they respond? They tremble. And the creation itself, and in all the creation, one of the most majestic things we can see is a mountain or a mountain range. And here the mountains before this Lord come apart, melt, and run away. Picture a volcano, a lava flow, where the mountain just seems to be kind of, of just vomiting up its very core, and then it runs away, flees from the presence of the Lord. This is a picture. This is quite a picture. Those verses, one on top of another, a storm, an irresistible storm, generating destruction and fear. The people tremble. This is the awesome majesty of the God who reigns. When he shows himself, it is like an ominous great storm that causes people to cower in front of it. Majesty. made all the more resist, irresistibly awesome because of the character or the nature of that reign. He reigns from a throne, verse 2, that is rooted in, that is based on righteousness and justice. And everything about him declares that, verse 6, everything says, this is the Lord and he's righteous. There's an echo here in verse 6. I think we're meant to hear Something of Isaiah chapter 6, if you know that chapter there. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6 sees the Lord, this Lord, the one God, high and exalted, and the train of his robe fills a temple that is smoking and shaking. And the angels declare what? Holy, holy, holy is him. That one. The earth is full of his glory. And it's echoed here as heaven declares he's righteous and all the earth sees his glory. 
He is righteous and holy unlike any. This is why righteousness doesn't feel cuddly to us. Passages like this. There's nothing warm and tender and fuzzy about this. And notice, however it is that I talk about it, the words are right there. I'm not putting a lot of spin on this. God presented himself to us with clouds and thick darkness all around him. God presented himself to us as a fire. That's the God who sits on the throne of righteousness and justice. It is deliberately discomforting. It's a fire that burns up his adversaries. This is a righteous God who has nothing whatsoever to do with evil or sin or wickedness and wants none of it anywhere in his creation and is firm and resolved in his opposition to all opposition. He burns up his adversaries. He is the Lord who never slumbers and sleeps, so he never misses anything and nothing ever slips by him. He catches it all and sees it all in a certain way. And all of his opponents are put to shame. It says down in verse 7. That's not shame as, is, as in embarrassed. That's, that's, a, that's a term of judgment. Honored and lifted up, cast down and shamed. So this is certainly, first we have to say, it's certainly a, a word of warning to those who oppose him, and even a call of sorts. If you look at the end of verse 7, he calls the gods to turn to him and worship him. Everything that worships something else, which is people, and everything that's worshipped, all of it should be beneath him. It should be rightly ordered beneath him. And so there's actually, in this warning, in this sober warning, there's an invitation. Come. And, and I, I recognize, I Though I've tried to be in tone here, not, not exuberant, there is something in this that someone will say sounds like a lot of fire and brimstone because, frankly, there's fire in it. It's not meant, this is not meant, speaking to, the, to someone who's, who's, who's hearing this, who's coming to this, as someone who is outside, it's not meant as any kind of a boast or any kind of a rub your nose in or any kind of anything designed to be angry with you. Let, let me ask, how does, if you're a parent maybe, how do parents speak to kids where there is real danger involved? No parent ever said to four-year-old playing in the front yard, hey, Junior, you know, if you're thinking about maybe running into the street, give that a second thought because that might not go so well. Nobody ever said that to a four-year-old playing in the front yard. Don't run in the street, you'll get killed. And if you don't understand killed, what I said to my kids a car will hit you, squash you like the grasshopper you stepped on yesterday and squashed. The car will squash you and you'll be gone and we'll never see you again. Ooh, that's pretty graphic. Yeah. Why? Because I hate my kid. I'm angry at him. No, 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 no. Why? Because I want my kid to think, I better not run on the street. There's real danger there. And to not go. When God talks in imagery like this to people who are his adversaries, it's because he wants you to know there's real danger. Don't go there. Stay in the yard. Turn. There's, there's no hatred in God here. There's no... There's no vehement, rub your nose in it, ugly boastfulness. That's kind of how we think of fire and brimstone sometimes, or a God who talks about 
quaking and making people tremble, it's, it's because there's real danger and he wants effective warning. So hear that, please, and turn. That's the path that leads to destruction, and it really does, because he really is a fire that burns up all his adversaries. So obviously, don't be adversarial. Because he is uncompromisingly righteous and just. So there is, there is a message there to those who are outside, but we, but we have to reckon this is a prayer for us who are already inside. So, yes, there's something to the adversaries, but this is not actually written to the adversaries. This is written to us. This is what we are to pray and even to sing. We are the people of the Lord already. If you think back a little bit, it doesn't matter if, if you're people who were far off and have come in. As verse 1 talks about, the, the earth rejoices in the coastlands. We might, we might talk about people on distant shores, those far off. If you're the coastlands or if you're verse 8, the people who already were in, the people of Zion, the daughters of Judah, that's the people of God together who are reading this and praying this not as adversaries. So what's supposed to come to us from this? It's ominous storm imagery written to us. A rigid righteousness that burns and shames his enemies written to us. What does he mean to accomplish in us as he puts this onto our praying lips, into our meditating minds? Well, surely there's a bit of, of sobering here and of, and of humbling here. If we think about Isaiah 6 or we think about the people of God before Mount Sinai, there's, there's something there that is sobering, that is humbling, and that would move us away from unrighteousness and away from injustice towards him. I'll come back to that a little bit later. But that's not the main theme. That's not the dominant point. This isn't here primarily to make us humbled and turned from unrighteousness, though that is a side point, and we'll come to that briefly. This might seem odd, especially given how that, those words, that imagery feels to us, but we're supposed to pray that, meditate on it, and we set our, our closed eyes, if you will, on this enthroned and this reigning, this righteous, this just king, and what's supposed to come out of us then, what's supposed to build in us is the second observation. The reality of this righteous reign should move us towards joy. Parentheses, and faithful obedience. So this said, I got touched on that a little bit. But the reality of this righteous reign should move us towards joy parentheses, and faithful obedience. Rejoicing and joy and gladness, those are the words all throughout that capture the response of the people of God. Which may seem odd because you don't feel warm and cuddly. You don't get shepherd tenderly caring for his sheep from storm imagery. That's a real image, shepherd and sheep. It's just somewhere else. Here we get something different. But the result, rejoicing and gladness, it's actually the same result. It's verse 1, let the earth rejoice, the many coastlands be glad. It's verse 8, right in the middle there. Zion hears and is glad. The daughters of Judah rejoice. And in the end, light is sown for the righteous, joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord and give thanks to his holy. It's the same response. From storm, from righteousness and justice. Maybe my view of righteousness and justice needs to be adjusted so that it gladdens me and causes me to rejoice and give thanks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Why? Why would that cause me? Well, okay, follow the argument in verse 8. The people of God hear and are glad and rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. 
What moves us to the gladness is because of your judgments. His judgments move us. And don't think of, when you hear judgment, don't think of just like only a judge in a courtroom passing a judgment. Bigger than that, think, we're talking about a king, think of a king who says something like, in my judgment we should do, some of that might be a legal verdict, but it's bigger than that. Maybe we paraphrase and say, we rejoice because of how you decide to do things. How you decide to steer or how you decide to govern the world. As we hear and see, you, Lord, govern, you, Lord, judge rightly and justly, not haphazardly, not with prejudice or indifference. We hear that and should think all that pains all that you suffer under or ever will suffer under it all comes from somewhere and it has some sort of a cause and everything that tempts you and leads you astray into self-destruction or into the harm of others and everything that touches all the people around you loved ones, neighbors people you read about in the newspaper. Causes them to struggle, causes them to suffer, overcomes them and drags them down and afflicts them. And I'm thinking both individually about you yourself personally, that person personally, or you can also think of classes of people, economic classes or racial classes or or ethnic groups and individuals. All that suffering and hardship and pain and confusion and frustration and loss, directly or indirectly, comes from unrighteousness and injustice. Sin. Directly or indirectly. A consequence of unrighteousness and injustice that runs through the fabric of the world and also controls the human heart. It is no stretch to say that the world weeps because of rampant unrighteousness. Even things that we would look at and say, well, physically, I mean, I caught caught an illness or a disease or my body's decaying. That's not because anybody sinned. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. All the way back to the very beginning, there was a great act of unrighteousness committed when our fathers turned away from, Adam and Eve turned away from, and the world was broken, it all traces back somehow or another. You could turn it around then and put it positively. If the world was righteous and just, if what is right and just held sway in this world and in people, the world would be beautiful and good. So to sit under this psalm even under the dark imagery at the beginning, to sit under it and to pray this psalm, what moves us from dread to delight is to see the judgments of the Lord righteous and just and to see the vigor of the Lord in the fire and in the storm and to see here's a Lord vigorously, relentlessly resolved, committed to making the world right. Bless God. Because right now we weep as it's not right. Bless God that he's committed to that, that, he's, that he is actually fired up, if you will, about bringing about something different, something more, something better. As a Christian, Christian, you have a great privilege here. You have a great confidence that this king of righteousness rules over the world and over your life, shepherds you. Oh, the shepherding of his sheep is in this passage. It is. It is. Just different than we thought. That he rules over the world and rules over your life. That he shepherds his people towards and with righteousness and justice. How gracious, how merciful. 
So you can know the, the arc of history, however big and long the arc is, it has a bend in it. It is bent towards righteousness and justice. That is, it is bent towards your good. He always puts down the enemies. He always casts down the false idols. And he always delivers you, his people. He saves you from the hand of the wicked. He preserves the lives of his saints. In the long view of events, it is always gain, and it is always corrected, and it is always vindicated in your favor. So let me, let me give an example, which I do very carefully. I've thought like six times about this, and I wasn't sure which way I was going to go until, I, until right now. So here's the example. And I say this carefully carefully. Think 1960s South. What comes to mind? Segregation, racial injustice, that. So you're an African-American Christian in the 1960s in the South, and that's what you look at all the time. little preview here. I picked an example that's pretty clear and that applies to few of us initially. So I understand that. I did that on purpose. But you're an African-American Christian in the 1960s South and you see that all the time. And you're grieved by that all the time. Pained by it. Physically pained by it and humiliated by it, and put down by it all the time. And maybe it's particularly painful, as you see if you're a parent, you see your children pained by that. We've, we've all seen movies, we've all seen where dad has to explain to junior why he can't go into that bathroom, and you feel the shame in dad. That's, that's, your, that's your existence. You can pray this psalm and be glad and rejoice and be glad and give thanks. Even, and I say this very carefully because this is crazy talk, even while being beaten. Crazier talk, I say this very carefully even while being beaten and by a mob hung up on a tree. Because you can read this psalm and along with another one who was beaten and by a mob unjustly, unrighteously hung up on a tree, you can say, Oh, Father, Forgive them. They have no idea what they do. They do not see the fire that is coming. Woe to the adversaries. And by comparison to that, this is light and momentary affliction, which I say very carefully, very carefully because, don't you know, don't you feel how hard that is to say that? But haven't we read that in the Bible? Compared to that, light and momentary affliction, put the right here, I'm going to come back to that. But I see what they don't see, that this unrighteous injustice in the fullest extent of its awfulness is set up before Clouds gathered and fire coming. Oh, Father, forgive them. They are in trouble. It sounds like sorrow. Where's the joy? Where's the gladness in that? Because you also know 
that the arc of history bends towards, and that will be stopped. When the fire comes, that will be stopped, and the world will be fixed, and what our hearts long for will be established firmly so. In righteousness and justice, he will reign. And picking up the light and momentary affliction, and I will see that this light and momentary affliction under the hand of the righteous and just one who reigns will attain for me something. Great glory that far outweighs all of this. I don't actually, I'm not most blessed by just a world that's, that's fixed and runs a little bit better. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed. What I want is a world that's fixed and in which I, as a Christian, am made to shine like you. And this is, in, under your reigning hand, this is attaining for me an eternal glory that far outweighs it all. So I can pray Psalm 97 in the midst of injustice, in the midst of unrighteousness, and I can say, I know what's coming. I see you at work, Father. Your judgments are good and right. Your judgments against what is evil. Your judgments against what is unjust. And your judgments for what is righteous and just. For me, your righteous one, you will deliver me. You will rescue me. And you will lift me up and honor me where they are shamed. You will honor me. That's how you rejoice even while sorrowing. And let me go one step further with this. Now you're no longer an African-American Christian in the 1960s. Now you're a Caucasian Christian in the 1960s. And you read Psalm 97, and you see what's going on. And you best be right to be on the right side of it. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. This is how it turns a little bit. Yes, it should drive us towards righteousness and justice like he is. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. If I do that, you know, everybody, all my neighbors are, are going to turn against me. He preserves the lives of his saints. You too. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. The wicked will turn on you. If you side with righteousness, yes, uh-huh. And he'll deliver you, too, like he's delivering him. So the reason that I use this illustration, the reason I was hesitant, probably obvious, it's really sensitive. But the reason I used it is that it's easy for us to say, oh, it's pretty clear for me to see what's right and what's wrong there. Got that. That's right, that's wrong, I understand that. If I'd used something like the Black Lives Matter movement, that would have been a whole lot trickier, wouldn't it? If I'd used something about minimum wage and as it applies to Spanish-speaking workers who don't even know the law, that would have been trickier. If I'd talked about human trafficking, I would have been talking about something I know nothing about, and we don't know what to do with it. So I picked something that's really easy, that's really clear, but can we take the principles from that and move it into some other areas that are much more difficult and much more confusing and say, in reverse order, We'd best be right to be on the right side of it. Whatever that is. Sometimes I don't have any idea. But this is a God who loves righteousness and justice and who reigns in righteousness and justice. And so we'd best be right to be on the right side of it, even if it costs us 
We believe he preserves the lives of his saints and he delivers us from the hand of the wicked. We best side on the side of righteousness and justice and best be most concerned about that and less concerned about what other people around us think, about what impacts our pocketbooks, what is righteous and just. But then continuing to move, we got to be about, this has to be about producing in us gladness and delight even in the midst of unrighteousness and injustice. So I don't know. I, I don't know what to say about righteousness and injustice in the 15 or 1,500 circumstances that this world faces. I picked an easy one because I could speak to it. Maybe you in your place, you, you in your workplace, you in your family, you, you, you see Here's a place where I face and suffer under some sort of unrighteousness. And I, yes, I'm, on, I'm concerned to be on the right side of it. Got that part. But here I am suffering under it. And the word to you is consider the judgments of the Lord and rejoice. He bends the arc of history. He will take care of it and take care of you in it. And the fact that he has providentially determined that you face this and that you move through it, it is attaining for you an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs all this. So take heart. And rejoice and be glad even. The reality of this reign should push us towards gladness when we face injustice and when we face unrighteousness which is all the time. And, parentheses, it should move us towards obedience, towards siding with God on righteousness and injustice. But at one more point, we've already been touching on a bunch of different ways, but need to make explicit. Finally, the Lord's righteous reign fully comes when he finally comes. The Lord's righteous reign fully comes when he finally comes. I just have to make this explicit because there is, if you're listening through this and tracking through it, there is an obvious disconnect here because we're talking about a God who is firmly committed, who is resolved. I mean, use all the words there who is really, really fired up about righteousness and justice, and then in the same psalm you read about the wicked and the need to be saved from their hands. It's in the same psalm. How, how fired up is he? But it still is. Or you read the psalm and then you lift up your eyes and, and all the unrighteousness and all the injustice that I just kind of mentioned in passing, one of them comes up big in front of you. There's a shooting in a school again. Driven by unrighteousness, certainly. Driven perhaps even by spiritual forces of evil that it says he puts down, that he opposes. Is this all a sham? That's kind of the question that arises. Is this, is this a delusion, a mirage, that yes, God is righteous and just, but this is the world? We've talked about it a number of times, but there's something you can notice in the text here that, that points us forward. If you look at verse 11, when does this rejoicing happen? Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. All the older Older translations accurately get the word sown there. Sowing is something you do with seed. You put it in the ground, and we all know it's not fully matured then yet. And even when it first comes up, it's not fully matured then yet. It's got to grow a little while. And later, the harvest, at some point later, the harvest is reaped. So here we have light, parallel, Joy sown. So the righteous, the upright in heart, the people of God, there's something sown for us that's not yet 
meant to be fully reaped. He's looking ahead, looking down the corridor of time. And that makes sense of some of the elements because it talks about fire going before him and burning up his adversaries. That obviously hasn't happened yet. People see everywhere. All the people see the righteousness of God that hasn't happened yet. He's looking ahead. And that's also the case, remember, the connection we saw at the very beginning with the previous psalm. The very end of 96 brings up the idea of rain and the idea of righteousness and also points us ahead. When will the trees of the forest sing for joy? Verse 13, before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. That is, he judges, finally, when he comes. Ultimately, this is about the kingdom of Christ. That's when the reign of the king is fully and finally experienced, when he comes to reign. And from the perspective of the psalmist, that's all future. But from the perspective of people like us who have just finished studying the Gospel of Luke, we have seen that the king has come and is coming. We're in the middle here. We're in between So we have some experience, yes, but not fully, no. And we're kind of like, if you remember this from Luke also, we're kind of like John the Baptist then. Remember John the Baptist as he sat there, I believe that the Lord, the righteous one, is coming and he's going to bring the day when he makes it all right. Then why am I in prison? And I think they're going to cut off my head. Why am I in Are you... Really? Is this all sham? This is delusion? Because if you're this God, if you are the king of righteous reign, and I'm a dead man walking right now, something doesn't connect. And what did Jesus say to him and to his messengers? Look and see. The kingdom has begun. I have started the work of pressing righteousness and pressing justice into the world and undoing all of the suffering that in some way or another is tied to that. Look around. The blind see, the lame walk. People who are adversaries are made friends. It started. It's not yet full, but it started. Hold on to that. And rejoice in the jail cell and rejoice as they cut off your head. That's crazy talk. I know, I know. We're like John the Baptist. We're standing here in the middle. We look at a world that's broken and fallen and isn't yet right and just. And what we are supposed to do, like John the Baptist, is hold on to the it has come, but it fully comes when he finally comes. And that day's coming. Look around at the beginning of the spread of righteousness. You, most of you, are from the distant shores or from the coastlands. And how did it come about that you love him? Because it started. He has come to press righteousness into you. He's made you one of these people at the end, the upright, the righteous Last two verses. He's done that. that, That's what the king has come to begin his righteous renewal in you. And you know him and love him. And the work that he has begun, he will not stop. Full renewal is yet to come when he finally comes. Full justice and full righteousness will come to pass. And in the meantime, we sit and we pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Looking for that day when all justice and all righteousness, the glory of the Lord covers all of the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's coming. And in the meantime, rejoice and be glad and be sure to be on the Lord's side. Let me pray.
Lord, would you accomplish the supernatural work of growing in us thankful, glad-hearted delight over your righteousness. Will you grow in us a, a supernatural ability to rejoice and be glad even when we are in the midst of unrighteousness and injustice? Will you do a supernatural work there that causes us to believe you, to see you as this God firmly committed to what's right, certainly bent towards its accomplishment. I, I don't know the, the situations that we all face. We face them. We will face them. Situations where things that are not right still happen and maybe pain us. Spirit of God, please show up in power in those moments in the hearts of your people. Cause them to see his coming. And to rejoice and be glad in that and to trust in your making of us glorious, glorious heirs. And Lord, we want to be righteous. We want to be just with you. And sometimes that is hard too. Give us faith that you will preserve our lives even if those around us don't like it. We grow in us a commitment to righteousness and justice. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of righteousness and a God of justice for shepherding us in all of these ways. Thank you. We pray trusting you and thankful. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.